Our text this morning is taken from two passages of scripture. Acts chapter 3, verse 17 through 21, and Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 31. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blunted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Acts 16. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's feathers were unfastened. When the jailers woke and saw that the prison's doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Men, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The aim of this series of messages which comes to a conclusion today has been to make plain, as I know how, how to become a Christian. And in the process, to help you become bold and able in helping others know how to become a Christian. So that we are a more effective church in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. These six truths here are the things that I believe one must know and act upon in order to become a Christian. So let me just summarize them before we look at number six today. Becoming a Christian means... First of all, recognizing that there is a great God who made the world and everything in it, including you and me, for His glory. Second, becoming a Christian means recognizing that therefore, the reason I live, my meaning is to give God glory by loving Him, trusting Him, thanking Him, obeying Him, to reflect back to God the worth of His beauty, His greatness, His strength. Becoming a Christian means, thirdly, recognizing that I have failed miserably in this destiny for which I was made. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I have exchanged the glory of God for other things that I have valued more, and I have brought great contempt upon the glory of God and scorned His name. And therefore, the fourth thing that becoming a Christian means that we realize is that I am under condemnation. 
Everyone who has sinned is under the just wrath of God who loves His glory and will vindicate His glory by punishing those who have brought contempt upon it in hell forever unless a way of salvation can be found. Therefore, the fifth thing that becoming a Christian means is recognizing that God, in the great love with which He loved us, sent His only Son into the world, Jesus, to provide eternal life. And He did that by dying and becoming a ransom for sinners, a substitute for sinners, and a vindication of the glory of God that sinners had scorned. And now this morning, the question is, in the words of the jailer, what must I do to be saved? How can I know that the ransom is for me? That the substitute is for my sin and my curse? And that the vindication of the glory of God is the vindication precisely for the injury that I brought upon God by my sin. What must I do? When that question was asked in Acts 16 by the jailer, Paul and Silas did not answer, you don't have to do anything. Because Christ died for everybody. And you're already saved. He didn't answer that way, did he? Because it's not true. The design of the death of Jesus Christ for sinners is not such that anybody will be saved without a personal response. Let me say that again. The design of the death of Jesus Christ is not such that anybody will be saved by it without a personal response to God. And so the question that I want to talk about this morning is what kind of response is required for salvation? Now we need to stress that there is a full salvation in Jesus Christ. There is a reservoir of grace in Jesus Christ that is infinitely valuable. It is sufficient for every human being in the world who responds to Jesus Christ in faith. There is no limitation upon the value of the atonement that was wrought in Jesus Christ. But it saves only those who respond. Nobody is saved by the death of Jesus who does not respond to the death of Jesus and become a Christian. What's the response that we are required to give? The first thing I want to stress, and if you would like, I invite you to look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 is a verse that I think if I had it to do over again, I might have included here under number six. It's very hard to choose from the wealth of good news verses what to choose when you're trying to keep a brochure very brief and manageable. <clears throat> but here's one I did not include <coughs> in, the, in the pamphlet. 
but which is very great and I want to stress this morning because I want to accent at the outset that salvation is free and not earned by works. So let's read Ephesians 2, 8. By grace are you saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let's make it very clear this morning. Let's just shout it. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is free. It is a gift of God. It is by grace, through faith. It is not our own doing. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Draw attention to himself. Christ bought it. We can't buy it. There is no price upon it. It is free. Here's the way God invites to it in Revelation 22:17. He says, "Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price." But now I want you to notice something in Revelation 22:17. Even though you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't work for it. Something is required to have it. Thirst and coming. Let him who thirsts come and drink. If you don't feel any thirst for God, any need for salvation, any conviction of sin, any hope for eternal life, any desperation under the wrath of God, you will never come. To Jesus. And if you don't come, you won't drink. And if you don't drink, you won't live. And so even though you can't earn it, you can't buy it, something is required. you got to thirst and you've got to come. The old King James Version here of this verse says, Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life. you got to will. you got to want. you got to desire or you'll never come. And so there is a requirement. You can't earn salvation. You can't work for salvation. But a change is required. A new thirst. You've got to stop thirsting for the water that kills in the world and start thirsting for the water that gives life in Jesus Christ. There is a turning that's required. Now the reason, the root reason why salvation is not by works is because God aims to glorify Jesus Christ not us, in the plan of salvation. When you do works for somebody, you call attention to your contribution, 
You call attention to your virtue. You call attention to your strength or your wisdom. And you get the glory. That's not the way God is going to save sinners. When you trust another, when you look away to Jesus Christ, He gets the glory. Faith glorifies Jesus. Works glorifies me. And God has ordained that Christ be glorified in the way of salvation, not me. If you want to know at the root why it is that works can never save, but that faith saves, this is the way to see it. God's original purpose in truth number one has never been forsaken. He created us for His glory, and that's precisely His goal in truth number six. He could have quit on this humanity once we got to truth number three and failed Him and exchanged His glory and given up on Him. He could have said, forget it with planet Earth, I'll start over on Mars. And He didn't do that. He sent His Son to planet Earth and said, I'll start over right here and I will create a people for my glory. But therein lies the secret for why you can never be saved by works. If you think that you could work for salvation, then you would get the glory. You would be honored. You would be glorified in the process of salvation. You would be making the contribution to your needy employer and he would have to throw a big party for you and give you gold watches and bonuses and wages at the end of your life. And that is not the way anybody is saved. We are saved in a way that gives God glory not us. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace are you saved through faith. He saves by grace because grace is the capstone of His glory. We know that because back in chapter 1, verse 5 of Ephesians, it says, He predestined us to be His children according to the good pleasure of His will under the praise of the glory of His grace. God's goal in redemption is so that His grace might be glorified through the praises of a redeemed people. You do not glorify the grace of God by working for salvation. You glorify your own power, your own virtue, your own efforts when you work for salvation. And therefore, salvation will never be by works. It will always be designed, executed, and applied in a way that brings Christ glory, grace glory, God glory. And that means what? What are the responses of the human being that call all attention to the grace of God and don't call attention to my worth and my value. Well, according to Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the jailer said, What must I do to be saved? <clears throat> and the answer came back, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Why? 
Why was that the key answer in the middle of that earthquake? It's because when you believe true things about Jesus, Jesus is glorified. When you trust your life to Him as reliable, He's glorified. And God means to save sinners in a way that gets His Son glory. And that means by faith in the Son. Not by works that call attention to my efforts. What about other requirements? Is anything besides faith required for salvation? Now that would be interesting to hear your responses to that. Because some of you have been well taught, we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But others of you are so biblically saturated, you could think of ten other requirements listed in the Bible just like that for salvation. The answer, faith alone, is true and yet misleading. If I were to say to you, no, it is not faith alone, there are other things you must do to be saved, it would be very misleading. Because probably all the other things that are mentioned in the Bible as requirements for salvation are at root forms of faith. But if I were to say to you, faith and faith alone is all that's required of you, it could also be very misleading because we live in a day where saving faith is simply not understood and people use it to justify a life of ungodliness thinking that God will save disobedient sinners who live in rebellion against Him and just say that they believe. So here's what I want to do in the few minutes we have left. I want to just show you some of the requirements that the Bible mentions for salvation and analyze them with you so that you can see even though they are not expressly faith, they are not works and at root are faith. All right, let's try. The first one was read by Wilfred. In Acts 13, 19, namely repentance. Let me just give you three passages of Scripture that show that repentance is required for salvation. The first one is Acts 3, 19, that says, Repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn. Why? Because in doing that, your sins are blotted out. Or here's another one, Luke 13, 3. Unless you repent you will all likewise perish. How shall you not perish? Repent. Here's a third one. Luke 15, 7 and 10. It says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Repents than over 99 righteous ones who need no repentance. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. That's because that's how sinners get to heaven is by repenting. Now, I know that there are teachers today who say that if you preach repentance 
as a requirement for salvation, you are preaching works and contradicting the freeness of the gospel. And I don't believe that's true. Let me try to show you why I don't think that's true. It's true because repentance is not works. Repentance, let's use the uh, parable of the prodigal son. Repentance is turning from the slop of the hog pens of the world to the banquet table of your Father in heaven. And when you do that, you are not earning anything from your Father. You remember the story, don't you? He had gone off and lived in debauchery and spent his father's money and was a sinner through and through, just like me and you. And he's there feeding his face with the hog slop, saying, if I just went back to my father, maybe he would be willing to sign me on as a slave and I would have better food than I have here. So he he turns. This is repentance. Turns his back on the world and sin. And he starts heading home. Now had his father said, Sure, you can sign on here and get out there and put your name on. And once you put in five days of good work, then I will let you in here and you can eat. And that would have been salvation by works. And, and that's not what he did, is it? In order to head off salvation by works, the father heads him off before he can get to the slave quarters. And he stops him dead in his tracks. He puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. He gives him the biggest bear hug you can ever imagine, tears running down his face. He calls for a big party and he says, Now sit down and eat, son. And anybody that can find works and earning in that event, I quit. It is not salvation by works. But it is salvation by repentance. Repentance is not works. When you turn from the slop of the world to sit down at your father's table because he loves you and has his arms open to you, you haven't earned a thing. You haven't worked for him at all. Repentance is not works. Now here's another description of repentance that describes the requirement for salvation a little differently. It comes from Matthew 18.3 and it goes like this. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what must you do to enter the kingdom of heaven? You must turn and become like children. There's another requirement for salvation. But now I ask you again, is that works? I think it's the opposite of works. What does it mean to become like a child? To humble yourself, to admit that you're helpless, to trust your father, to say, I'm done with being proud and self-sufficient and self-confident. Is that works? That's the opposite of works. 
A child is the one member of the family who can't pull his own weight. To turn and become like a child is to say, I can't work for my father. I'm helpless. I've got to just sit in his arms. He carries me across gullies. He has to feed me. I'm just a, on the dole in this family. When the Bible says, you must turn, which by the way is the same as you must be born again. You must turn and become like a little child. It is not saying you must hire on and work for your father like an employer. But it is repentance. It is change. It is humbling yourself Quitting all of your self-reliance and all of your boasting and all of your self-exaltation and self-confidence. It's forsaking self and saying, I'm just, I can't do anything for myself. Father, would you, would you take me? Would you help me? Bruised and broken by the fall. If you wait till you are better, you will never come at all. So yes, we must turn and become like children, but no, that is not salvation by works. Here's another one that may sound a little more risky. What do you do with passages of Scripture like these three that says, in order to be saved, you must have an obedience to the Son? Here they are. Hebrews 5, 9 Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. 1 Peter 4.17 What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? <clears throat> John 3.36 He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. Now what does this mean? It means that when the gospel comes to you, it comes with the authority of God. And the only way to receive the authority of God in the gospel is with an obedient spirit. If you don't have an obedient spirit towards the authority of God in the gospel, you don't receive the authority of God in the gospel. And if you don't receive God's authority in the gospel, you don't receive the gospel. And if you don't receive the gospel, you can't be saved. You must have an obedient spirit to the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as He comes to you in the gospel. Now, is that works? To say that, is that to say you must work for your salvation? You must earn your salvation? That you must have an obedient response to the Lord? I think I can help you answer that question most clearly by going to another text where Jesus now calls people to salvation by calling them to himself. He uses words that clearly imply an obedient spirit but they're different words. It's Mark 8.34, and these are the words he uses. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
That's where I get the idea of an obedient spirit. Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Now, what's the requirement for having life in that verse? Losing your life. He who would lose his life will save it. So the way of salvation is the way of lost life, which is described as denying yourself, taking your cross, and following Jesus. Now let's think about this for a moment, because right here is a very crucial choice you'll have to make. Whether you believe in salvation by grace, through faith, not according to works, or whether you believe this is teaching salvation by works. And I want to say emphatically with all my heart and all my mind, this is not salvation by works, but it is salvation by following Jesus. Now, why do I think this is not salvation by works? First, because dying is not working. You see, it says... He would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That means go to Calvary and die on the cross. And I defy anyone to show me that a dying man is a working man. A dying man is a dying man. A dying man is a helpless man. A dying man is a worthless man. When Jesus calls you to come and die, He doesn't call you to come and work. If I say my old proud John Piper, the old self-reliant, egotistical, self-exalting John Piper must die to be saved, is that saying that John Piper must get to work? Working is not dying. Dying is not working. Dying is dying. You don't earn anything from anybody when you walk up and drop dead in front of them. You don't earn anything from God by obeying the command to come and die. That's the first reason I don't think Jesus is calling for work salvation here. The second reason is just to think about the concept of following Jesus. And here, I just want to sow in your mind a little picture from Elliot Park. Pigeons are not working for John Piper because they waddle around behind me eating the breadcrumbs that I drop. And you are not working for Jesus when you follow him either. Of course, if you don't understand the gospel, when it says, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. If you don't understand that that's the gospel, that he's a bread giver, a life giver, then you might think that following Him is signing up on His 
his employee list so that you earn wages, which it isn't. In fact, the image to have in your mind, if you don't like the pigeons, is Mark 2.17. I am the good physician. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When you come to Jesus in obedience to the command, follow me. You are not coming to an employer from which you earn wages. You're coming to a doctor because you're so desperately sick. And you know he alone can heal. Is that works? Do you earn from your doctor when you say, Doctor, I am so sick, I cannot stand it anymore. Is that works for your doctor? Are you earning something from your doctor? Do you see the difference between the obedience of faith and working for God as though you could earn anything from Him? And do you see why repentance is necessary for salvation? Coming is necessary. Drinking and eating and and, uh, following are necessary, but they are not works any more than those little pigeons as they pick up the bread and waddle around behind me are working for John Piper in Elliott Park on a summer's afternoon. Hanging outside the pearly gates, there's a sign called the Gospel. And if you read it one way, you will try to work your way into those gates. And if you read it another way, you will trust your way dependently, helplessly, like a little child into those gates on the back of Jesus Christ. The wrong way to read the sign would be help wanted. And the right way to read the sign would be help available. Now, do you know the gospel this morning? I've done my best over these last six weeks to try to make the gospel plain. It is not a help-wanted sign. God does not need our work any more than a fountain in heaven needs the hauling of the buckets of our muddy labor up to be poured into for His fullness. He is a fountain of grace, a fountain of life and joy and hope and eternal blessing to you. And the gospel this morning is help available to those who look away from themselves, humble themselves, become like a little child, trust in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, let me let me say here as we close what a prayer might sound like. And, and I hope that uh, many of you are closing with Jesus Christ decisively. All the believers reaffirming your own faith and all of those who have been struggling with whether you are truly committed to Christ or not doing that right now. And what you would say is something like this. You would say, Lord Jesus Christ, I come to you right now as the only hope in my life. I'm a sinner And I've screwed up my life and made such a big mess of it. There's no way I could ever hope to be accepted by God unless your death for me were to cover my sins. 
I come to you and I see in you the key of truth, the key of hope and eternal life, the key of meaning, the key of righteousness, the key of all my needs. All that you are, I now take for all that I need. And I thank you for loving me and dying for me and giving yourself to me to meet my needs forever and ever and ever. I forsake all others and cleave to you alone as my hope and my Savior and my Lord.